0: Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. This week, we're celebrating our 20th episode by looking at some of the topics that have fallen through the cracks so far in episode 20, Loose Ends. First up is Frankish names. We talked a little about this way back in the episodes about Clovis, but names are a particularly complicated topic in this period. There are a few reasons for this. First, our main sources are all writing in Latin, meaning the names are Latinized to various degrees. Then the translations we have often clean them up a bit as well for the ease of the reader. For example, Clovis is actually closer to Clodovicus in Latin, which is different still from the Frankish Clodowig. All of these Frankish names we get go through this process meaning that if we time-travelled back to Merovingian Gaul and tried to address any of our characters by name, they would likely just look at you, very strangely. But things get even more complicated when we take in multiple versions of names that appear in our sources. Some are fairly small changes. Brunhild, for example, is sometimes written ending with an A, Brunnhilde. But some are fairly wild, and these ones also tend to be quite fun to say, as a nice little bonus. Clovis, for example, becomes Flodovius in his wife Clothild's hagiography. Similarly, Brunhild and Fredegund become Brunichildus and Fredegundus in the Chronicle of Fredegar. Longer and more complicated, but also much more fun to say. When doing research, this fluidity to names can often get a little annoying, as you'll get halfway through a source before you realise you've met this character before, or they're not who you thought they were. When I get frustrated by this, I like to say the name Flodovius a few times, and that tends to brighten my mood a little. The next topic I'd like to talk about this week are Jewish people. This may come as a surprise, but there are actually quite a few passages involving Jewish people in Gregory's work, and there seems to have been a small but significant population of them in Gaul, especially in the southern mercantile cities. I haven't brought them up thus far for a couple of reasons. First, I'm not a Jewish historian and I have no expertise in the topic, so any discussion would be very surface level. Second they don't tend to appear in stories of the kings and nobles we are talking about most of the time. Instead, they mostly appear in individual chapters in one of two scenarios. First, in an argument with Gregory. Gregory devotes pages to his discussions with people of the Jewish faith, and they are generally rather boring. Unlike the brutal wars the Romans waged against the Jewish people, and the savage pogroms and persecution that occurred in the Middle Ages, this period is comparatively calm. This is absolutely not to say that the Franks and gallo Romans were super tolerant, or even peaceful, towards the Jewish people living in their midst. But comparatively, it was a lot calmer. Gregory's arguments with Jewish figures reveal an attitude that seems to have prevailed amongst the church elite in this period. It is an odd mix of infantilization and evangelizing spirit. Gregory treats the Jewish people he interacts with kind of like lost lambs who need to be led back to the righteous path. Their resistance to the obviously correct, in Gregory's mind, Christian doctrine puzzles him, but he is willing to talk through it as part of his Christian duty. This means that the chapters detailing these discussions are rather dull and filled with doctrinal and theological arguments. When I read them, I tend to feel sympathy for the poor Jewish person who has been confronted by Gregory, because I've always gotten the impression debating Gregory on this topic would be a little like debating a particularly condescending brick wall. The second scenario, however, is conversion and outright hostility. Gregory, predictably, always makes it seem like he's won his arguments, but others took less subtle approaches to, quote, correcting the religious learnings of Gaul's Jewish citizenry. In 582, Chilperic ordered a, quote, great number of Jewish citizens baptised forcibly. When they continued to practise their faith anyway, he ordered many of them locked up until they complied. Such ordeals no doubt put the Jewish community under intense pressure. Gregory tells us of two Jewish men, Priscus and Phaeter, who represent both the reluctant and the converted sides of the community, whose quarrel ended in a great deal of bloodshed. In addition to this story, is the one of King Guntram's entrance into Orléans for the feast of Saint Martin. When he was being welcomed by the diverse inhabitants of the city, Gregory records that they all welcomed him by singing his praises in their own languages, including the Jewish population. But when Guntram sat down at the banquet that night, he began ranting about how the Jewish people had only sung his praises in order to butter him up so they could convince him to let them rebuild their synagogue, which had been destroyed by an angry mob of Christians. While Chilperic's actions against the community resulted in bloodshed, Gregory's attitude is a little unclear. Here, though, Gregory praises Guntram for seeing through the, quote, "...cunning of the unbelievers," end quote. even though their request seems perfectly reasonable and no one else's motivations for praising the king are being questioned. There is, of course, much more to say on this topic, but as I have said before, I'm not really qualified to give anything more than an overview. But I hope it has revealed a little bit about the realities the Jewish people faced in this period, and there are many great books and articles on Jewish life in late antiquity to read, if you are interested. The next topic I'd like to talk about is the artistic interpretations of the Merovingians. The Merovingians are often referred to as the long-haired kings, and their long locks were actually a hugely important symbol of Merovingian blood. Remember last week how Chilperic had Merovech's hair cut after his rebellion? That action was meant to symbolise Merovech losing his Merovingian status. Similarly, when the last son of Clodomer, whose brothers had been killed by Clothar and Childebert, sought to protect himself from his uncles, he had his hair cut to show his devotion to a church career and his abandonment of his Merovingian claims. And when the last Merovingian king, Childeric the third, was deposed by the Carolingian Pepin the Short, the father of Charlemagne, Pepin had his hair cut publicly to symbolize the end of his dynasty. There are even several paintings of the events showing just how significant this was perceived as being. The artists who looked back on the Merovingian period, especially the early modern French artists searching for the origins of French national identity, latched on to this image of noble kings with long, flowing hair. Everyone loves a good origin story and the rise of Clovis and his dynasty is often seen as the beginning of modern France. Whether or not this is true, the image of these strong, masculine kings with their beautiful hair, like the one of Clovis that is the face of this podcast, became the norm. It showed the strength and style of these old kings. But there is more to this depiction than simply making the first French kings look good. There is a famous painting titled, quote, Vercingetorix Throws Down His Arms at the Feet of Julius Caesar, by the late 19th century French artist Lionel Royer. If you look up the painting, you'll see the Gallic king who had defied Caesar depicted in a very similar way to Clovis and the Merovingian kings. Sure, he has a moustache where the Merovingians are mostly bearded, but the hair is long, the demeanour is noble, and the message is clear. Like Clovis and the Merovingians, Vercingetorix has become a symbol of French identity, and all of these depictions utilize the image of a quote, noble savage. This is an incredibly common motif in art and literature, and centers around the idea that those who are less civilized are somehow closer to human perfection, mostly depicted in masculine traits. It has been used many, many times throughout history, but the French nationalists who created a lot of this art in the 18th and 19th centuries used this existing motif to make it seem like the ancestors of the French people were part of this noble savage myth. Powerful, beautiful, and glorious. So when you're looking at that picture of Clovis, remember that he wouldn't actually have looked anything like that. In reality, he was probably short, heavily scarred, and without modern conditioner, there is no way his hair would look like that. No one's genetics are that good, not even Clovis's. Next up is battle tactics. Unfortunately for all the military historians out there, Merovingian battles aren't particularly well-sourced. Since most of our knowledge about the period tends to come from chroniclers like Gregory, who generally don't care about the details of a battle, church historians and hagiographies that also don't care much, or legal and bureaucratic sources, Merovingian warfare is a little vague. We only really have good evidence for either end of the Merovingian period. We know the Franks fought both against and for the Romans, for a long time before the collapse of the Western Empire, and that early Frankish rulers modelled themselves off of the successful military emperors of the past. Thus, Frankish armies at the beginning of the Merovingian period fought a lot like late Roman armies. This meant a large infantry contingent that could operate as a raiding force, but fought pitched battles in a line formation. Supporting them, was the cavalry contingent, more heavily armed and armoured than the early Roman examples, but more mobile and flexible than medieval knights. The Battle of the Catalonian Plains, where Franks fought on both sides, shows us how Frankish armies were flexible enough to fit into both Roman and Hunnic armies, though they were mostly serving as infantry in both for this particular battle. At the end of the Merovingian period, during the rise of the Carolingians, we know that Frankish forces had devolved somewhat. Thus, when Charles Martel seized power, he embarked upon a series of military reforms that allowed him to defeat the encroaching forces of the Islamic Caliphate and generally establish the Franks as the major military power in the West once again. He did this by reforming the loose formations of infantry into a phalanx system capable of using their long spears to stand against enemy cavalry. To support this, he created a core of professional cavalry by seizing church land and giving it to these new men. This pike and heavy well-trained cavalry combination would allow his ancestors to expand Frankish dominion over a large chunk of Europe and would set the basis for most medieval European armies. But what went on in the middle? Well, we may not have great evidence, but we do have some clues. We hear from Gregory constant stories of kings in the middle of the Merovingian period ordering men from one city or area to move and attack another. This made sense. Professional standing armies are expensive, And require a strong centralized bureaucracy to maintain, something the Merovingians lacked. Without a clear outside threat to force them to maintain a high-quality force, Merovingian armies probably devolved into a mix of peasant militia and a few well-trained and armed bodyguards as a professional corps. This was probably effective at fighting other Franks or the raiding armies of the Saxons and Bretons, but its weakness can be seen in the Battle of Guadalete. This battle occurred in 711 between the Visigothic King Roderick and the Caliphate forces led by Tariq ibn Zayyad. In this battle, Roderick's inexperienced and ill-equipped peasant army was utterly destroyed by the hardened Muslim cavalry that had already swept its way across the Mediterranean. Many have argued that if not for Charles Martel's reforms, the Franks might have suffered a similar fate. The last topic I'd like to cover today are hagiographies. A hagiography is simply a biographical text about a saint, and Merovingian Gaul is full of both saints and stories about them. As you may have noticed, Gregory talks about saints a lot, especially the bishops who would go on to become saints, of which there are many. But he doesn't actually talk a lot about their miracles, a crucial part in their journey to sainthood. This isn't because he's filled with restraint, oh no, it's because he wrote a whole other series of books about the most significant saints in Gaul, where he lists their many, many miracles. It is actually a fascinating source, as Gregory displays the same budding historical method that appears in parts of his histories. His thorough research and enthusiasm shines through, though it is a slow read if you're not 100% sold on the topic. Hagiographies, by necessity, are skewed and difficult sources, and that is largely why I haven't utilised them much thus far in this series. If you're writing specifically to glorify the life of a certain individual you believe to be one of the holiest people who have ever lived, you don't tend to be particularly restrained or unbiased in your presentation of the facts. Also, it has to be said, I don't want to get sucked into a discussion of belief and whether miracles are real, nor do I wish to offend anyone. So, we're mostly going to delve into hagiographies when they become relevant to the social and political history of Merovingian Gaul that we are focused on. But even with this restriction, some hagiographies will be important. These will largely be for the men and women that played large roles in our story, and understanding how hagiographies should be read is important for us going forward. So let's take Radagund as an example. We've already discussed the Holy Queen a lot in this series, but her hagiographies illustrate perfectly how these sources are structured and how we should approach them as historians. Radegund has two main hagiographies, one by a woman named Baudavinia, and the other by a man named Venantius Fortunatus. Starting with Baudavinia, her hagiography is the most common type we see in Merovingian Gaul. Baudavinia was a nun at Radagund's Holy Cross convent in Poitiers, and after the Queen's death. Her hagiography served a common purpose, glorifying this important figure in order to boost the prestige of the convent. This was a common process. A particularly charismatic or important figure is linked to your church, convent or monastery? Well, if you play your cards right, your hagiography might be enough to popularize their cult and thus greatly enrich and improve your community's prospects. In fact, this exact issue is what led to the conflict between Radagund and the bishop of Poitiers, Morovius. When Radagund and her nunnery began to outshine the bishop's cult of St. Hilary, he lashed out, feeling his influence and prestige ebb with this new, radical, female figure in his own city. With this in mind, Baudavinia's hagiography is fairly bog-standard, dwelling on Radegund's miracles, stories that illustrate her piety and excellent moral character, and generally cleaning up her life a lot to avoid controversy and make her cult a safe one for people to follow. Venantius Fortunatus, on the other hand, represents a more personal and aggressive approach to hagiographical writing. Fortunatus was actually a poet and a very significant figure in Merovingian Gaul, who will definitely come up in a later episode. He was friends with Gregory, but more importantly, he was incredibly close with Radagund. So close, in fact, that some have suggested there might have been a sexual aspect to their relationship, though obviously nothing can be proven, and I tend to doubt it. Either way though, he had great respect for the queen, and when she died, he wrote a hagiography about her. Unlike Baudavinia's hagiography, which is obviously glorifying Radigun, but operated in the normal style, Fortunatus's hagiography is a wild read. His writing is so flowery and over-the-top that it beggars belief. Even in a genre specifically designed to glorify their subject, Fortunatus's work stands out and that is why his hagiography represents the second type. These were hagiographies that broke the mould in some kind of way, by either being so clearly just campaign documents arguing for canonization, like Fortunatus's, or going the other way and having a surprisingly muted tone, like the hagiography of Queen Bolfield, which we will look at in later episodes. Either way... Hagiographies are religious texts focused on glorifying a certain individual either in preparation for their canonization, or simply to boost their saintly profile to benefit their community. There were standouts, but the first type, represented by Baudavinia, were far more common. Both types, however, require an understanding of their inherent bias and an adjustment for the structure of the text in order to be effectively utilised as historical sources. And even then, it's a little dicey. So, that's the end of this episode. There were a few more topics I wanted to talk about, like inheritance law and a look at contemporary societies, but they ended up being a little too big and probably deserve their own episodes down the road. Anyway, I'd like to thank everyone who has gotten this far into the series. I'm still enjoying making these episodes, and it feels good to be getting all of my Merovingian knowledge out into the world, rather than letting it simply run around in my head, or bothering my friends and family with it. To have you guys listen in as well is a pleasure, so thank you again. Next week, we're diving back into the aftermath of Sigibird's death and the challenges facing Chilperic with the story of Guntram See you then.